homelessness policy, housing policy, or the agenda by any other name is still Agenda 21. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. This is actually part three of last week's Deep Dive. So I've been hitting the recent policies by Biden, the Biden-Harris administration, on homelessness and housing, and it all points to the same old thing that's been going on for 50 years. The first one was the 1976 UN Habitat One conference and protocol plan. Shortly after that, the era of modern homelessness emerged, I would say, largely because of housing policy that eliminated single resident occupancy in a lot of major cities in a, in a magnitude that is greater than the homelessness problem. So I could say it's 100% due to that. I mean, or that would have kept this from happening. Then there was a, um, a council established in the late 80s that actually is the one that put out Biden's homelessness policy. So they've been working on this for 40 years and the problem seems to be getting worse. But Rosa Corre, who wrote Behind the Green Mask on UN Agenda 21, the late great, um, she really laid this stuff out in that book 10 years ago. And it's been going on for longer than that. But the things that she brought out in that book, like you cannot deny that what we're seeing now is going in lockstep with that. And it's also pretty hand in hand with the World Economic Forum. They have, anytime you see something fishy going on, you can look on the World Economic Forum's website and just type in the future of, and it's whatever. And this is the future of real estate. They want to shape human habitation. They say it's because of climate change, but 50 years ago when they started this, it wasn't because of climate change. So they, I think they give, you know, they just do anything they can to justify sticking with the agenda. And they actually have techniques to get people on board with the agenda that Rosa goes into in depth. But she was at the time, like shortly after this book came out, mocked by it. For it. So I'm going to give you today's diving board is another article from the Atlantic. So part two of this show. So if you're, if you're listening to this, this is part three. If you missed the first two, we're, this is January 2023 and, um, probably around January 6th came out part one and then part two, January 9th. So you can go back and listen to those. The second one did have was based on an article in the Atlantic. I, in my research here, I came up with an article in the Atlantic from 2012. So June 2012. And I think Rose's book here is from like around 2011. Yeah, 2011. So they probably, they actually hit her directly in this article. But the headline of the article is Inside Agenda 21, the International Tyranny of Bike Lanes. And of course, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's completely in Agenda 21 about the bike lanes. And uh, the subtitle is a huge, massive subtitle in this article called, uh, it says, Agenda 21 is right now an important issue that is being passionately debated in many state legislatures around the country, but it's mostly been ignored by our national leaders and the press. It is being ignored because it is an insane conspiracy theory. And this whole article tries to discredit her and make people make it seem like people are crazy who, who think it or believe it. But there is just undeniable documentation from the UN, from the World Economic Forum. In, uh, I mean, the 
I think she might have been specifically hit in this hit piece on her revealing the Rand Corporation's Delphi method, which is absolutely still on the Rand Corporation website in its original form, the 1967 technique laid out originally. And still to this day, they use the Delphi method to, quote, generate consensus. So before we get to that, let's just talk about what is the actual agenda. And you can see that there is an agenda here. And as you go back, I mean, the, the amount of information here is just overwhelming. Like I could never go through it all. I have a couple of books here. I have The Limits to Growth from the Council of Rome, which is about 50 years old. I have Rose's book. Um, I did a lot of research. There's a lot of stuff in the show notes, articles, and uh, all of that, the World Economic Forum stuff. But these are the agenda, basically, if like I would think about a big picture and the way Rosa used to lay it out was, it's just top-down control. I, I mean, people will know from the 2016 World Economic Forum article that really made the rounds, it's 2030, I have no privacy, I own nothing, and I'm happy. I mean, that's the vision they want you to have. And it's funny because I've noticed that those pictures all have like, you know, really young, beautiful people. They do look happy. Everything's white and clean. And Rosa even mentions like when you see the graphic depictions of the agenda in action or what the plan is, what the outcome will be, it's always in this really upbeat, stylized, like um, happy, clean layout, but it's always every image you see is 100% consistent with the agenda, with any original proposal, with the plan. The consensus building is all about getting people on board with a pre-existing plan. And it seems like the plan is, the way she said it, like the reason they want um, like all the homes to look alike, to not have any niches, they want surveillance, they want, they want information, data, they want to be able to to command and control kind of everywhere at once. They don't want a lot of regional diversity because that would mean they would have to come up with different approaches to control the population or different solutions to the problems that individuals or localities might prefer. But they're not in it for that. And for me, this reminds me of conversations I've had recently with Ian Davis, where he talks about a kind of interim step to globalization will be regionalization. So you will feel like a loyalty towards your region, feel like you're participating in your region, but really they're just, you know, getting to you where you live, but always putting you on track to the ultimate kind of, you know, zipping up of the trilateral of the three lats of the regions of the world to this globalist or multipolar world, which is really just the same old thing. And I feel like we have seen the way they've treated human beings, this globalism, this in this uh, a lot of like ease of transportation. They like like immigration. They want multiculturalism. I feel like they've kind of gotten what they wanted there. They've disrupted cultures by bombing them and getting people to migrate out, to emigrate, and then by fostering them in new places, so getting immigration that causes cultural conflict, causes political conflict, has religious and values conflicts, so that you get a kind of no no regional roots, no regional style, and everything kind of gets up to this generic social democracy thing. 
So you might think that would go on forever, but I guess in a way, like a lot of ease of transportation, of communication, of information, you know, is a limited hangout. The way the internet's kind of a limited hangout. Like they, in order to get you to put all your information there, you had to get something out of it, which was information. And then they start closing it up so that the only information you get has already been curated, but you, you are so entrenched in it that the surveillance is basically perfect. So it seems to me that every single futurist scenario, or at least three out of four, like if you look at the 2010 Rockefeller Foundation stuff, it's lockstep, hack attack, and smart scramble are three of the four futures they envision. And all of them are about social and political fragmentation, localization, regionalization, less international, no like world government or anything, but still um, world class actors in the form of big philanthropy, for one thing, as a de facto world government. Like, it's very interesting the way they look at it, but it seems like they've kind of pushed pushed this multiculturalism, this internationalism, the globalism as much as they can. They've used COVID to destroy a lot of the local businesses. And, and so you want to say, who's they? Well, the World Economic Forum itself and uh, these model rules, these international recommendations, the World Health Organization, the CDCs of all the different countries implementing lockdowns and all of that. So we know who the they is in that scenario for sure. And I feel like there's also, like Dean pointed out, the 15-minute city movement where now they don't want you to even have to go beyond 15 minutes uh, away from where you are to get everything you need. And for me, that's about limiting communication. And transportation is a, a form of communication. And sharing information is a form of communication. And if they can lock you down, they can probably limit growth of human culture, of, of that kind of thing, human civilization. And actually, in this Limits to Growth book, it talks about all the problems that... Uh, we are going to face, this was written in the early 70s, 71 or 72, they're going to face in the year 2000, the year 2020 and 2075, and none of it's on track for that. And they talk about not only the limits to physical growth, but they talk about the social distress that will come up from that, that whole mouse thing where, you know, the mouse city, they're saying like that, that people will really have problems if there are food shortages, if there are scarcity, and none of this was on track. None of it was on track. And then all of a sudden, and they talk about disease and everything. And if you're of the same mind I am, the whole COVID thing was uh, was implemented. I mean, you can say it's a lab leak theory. I would say it's a lab release theory. And that the these plans to lock down and all of that were in place. So they gave us pandemic. They've been, I've been talking about this for years, how they're just creating social problems. They're creating um, populism and tribalism and they're creating, they're, um, in, they're encouraging people to not use the processes that would actually solve problems in peaceful ways. I mean, I remember that on Valentine's Day in 2018, the Parkland thing, that was the beginning of like, don't, don't use the process, defy the process. And of course, that is what has been destabilizing us. January 6th, which I think they completely created this idea of a, whatever, insurrection, but 
But what they're trying to implement in people's minds is that the process doesn't work and, and oh, oh, they want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if the process doesn't work, uh, you're going to have the kind of disruption that limits of growth is promising us and says, because of that, their argument was from the beginning that we need to do precautionary things that you can't take any action unless you can prove it won't have a negative environmental impact. You can't do anything. You can't build anything. You can't get a permit or ask for a permit unless you know you can prove that it's not going to have an impact, even if we're not sure there would be an impact. It's like a guilty until proven innocent kind of thing. And they were using these predictions to say, it'll be too late by then. And none of this stuff was on track, but I feel like they're actually creating these problems. Even when you see the trails in the sky that used to not be there when I was growing up, I'm telling you from my memory, like you, you people will say like, you're wrong, whatever. It's like, I'm just telling you, there's no doubt in my mind that stuff wasn't there. And I don't know what they're doing with that stuff. It's definitely having an impact on climate. Even people who say it's a contrail naturally occurring will admit that's having an impact on climate. So they, in my opinion, are creating the circumstances for um, to justify the agenda that they're bringing down, which was already, they used to use the population bomb as an, and as, as an excuse. The agenda hasn't changed, but their excuses have changed. It's obviously a tell that it's about excuses. It's about the agenda. So, um, but what was really interesting when I went back and looked at Rosa, oh, oh, one other thing is that, so the way they're like shutting down globalism, multiculturalism, and going towards regionalism, I feel like they, in order to give you this false sense of population density and crisis, they have, and I've heard people say this to me um, on Twitter, and I, this is not an original idea, they, they have been encouraging migration to the cities. They like that overcrowding. They like that sense you have of overcrowding. And like I'm at my mom's house, it was just down the street yesterday. So this is like 17 miles outside of the city of New York, outside of Manhattan. And there was, you know, the, my mother's lived in this house for 50 years, whatever. There was a deer just walking down the street. And that's probably a problem, like habitats are pushing them out. But there's also woods at the end of the street. And like, if this were, if the earth were really just, way, way overcrowded. I can't imagine a place that's been populated in such a big city, right outside such a big city for so long would have any anything left. I mean, people have half acres around here and it's not a rich neighborhood. It's just old. So now, because I think they've they've gotten as many people to move into the city as they can, kind of like the whole multiculturalism thing, they've gone as far as they can with that. Now they're going to push the inner city people into the suburbs. That's like the homelessness and housing stuff is all about pushing people into the suburbs and kind of urbanizing the suburbs. And that basically, if you didn't move into the city, it brings the city to you. It, they will force you to move either to go into some gated community deeper in or get to the exurbs or whatever. But it will, they do call, call, talk about cross-jurisdictional rules and all that. So they, this is part, I think, of the regionalization process and the way of breaking down local control by having different people there, but also having new 
new, like radically introduced styles, artificially introduced styles that aren't just emerging organically. I mean, that's where I think the problems come from. That's where I think zoning problems come from. I feel like um, I was reading about Austin and there was, they got the 2023 Texas Monthly Bum Steer Award. And this was like after 2016 when they had like the Greatest Place on Earth Award or whatever. And they're just, and Texas Monthly says, tech companies were lured to Austin by generous tax incentives. And I know that UT had a tech incubator, which will subsidize the employees and all that. So uh, they have, and things like electric scooters and homelessness, these are things that are brought into the town by policy. And once you have those kind of policies, you are going to change the shape. You are going to introduce systemic issues. And once you have systemic issues like that, then you introduce new policy. You can't just have the culture emerge around it or whatever to deal with those things. Uh, another thing that I noticed about, okay, so in 2016, Scientific American put out an article about Austin being one of seven finalists for the Smart City grant of $40 billion. And Austin was really put out plans to make it happen, and they did not get that $40 billion. But in the Texas Monthly article from just this month, it says, oh, Austin has already experienced 40% cost overruns in their Project Connect, their $10 billion like transportation initiative. And I was like, that sounds a whole lot like the smart city stuff. So I went back to some previous things I had noticed about Austin from Davos 2021 World Economic Forum, that they were a healthy city. They were a Davos healthy city and that they were involved in these initiatives. Um, one was like getting boxes of organic vegetables. Another was um, IBM having skills building there, which I know from other stuff I've read about IBM piggybacks off like free college quote and uh, you know high school guidance counselors and stuff. Definitely a way that IBM kind of collaborates with the public institutions to, I would say, leverage tax money to help them get a larger pool of employees that are trained so they don't have to pay for the training themselves or raise wages to get just what they want. Definitely, I'm suspicious of that. But one of the other things in this Austin Healthy City thing is Family Connects Texas. So that word connect, again, anytime I see like buzzwords, I feel like they are associated with each other. And that Family Connects is about having Social workers come to your house after you have a baby. And let me tell you, somebody who had a lot of that because my son had Down syndrome, I put in a stop to it pretty early on, but it was a lot of forms to fill out, very invasive. So it's not good faith. That's the thing about a lot of this stuff. They act like it's such good faith, but and it seems very data collection, very um, trying to get everybody to do the same thing. And even in the Down syndrome stuff, they tell you what to do but ultimately, uh, they can change their protocols after a couple of years. Like, oh, that didn't work at all. So they would say, push the tongue in because people with Down syndrome, their tongues stick out. Well, then they came back a couple of years later. I didn't do it, but came back a couple of years later and said, oh, don't do that because it actually makes the kid push back and builds the muscle that pushes the tongue out, made the situation worse. But they absolutely implemented it across the board and all of the social services that 
anything that I was exposed to, they said that. And, and after that, I realized like they don't know what they're doing. And honestly, I don't think they care because what they really want is to keep the problems going so that they can keep their programs going so they can keep people connected and dependent. I mean, that's kind of like very broad based, but what was really fascinating, I thought, um, about when I was reading Behind the Green Mask, why I really dug into it is that Rosa was saying that they really want you to believe that you're part of the process. They always talk about consensus building. And I remember um, it actually says in Habitat One, explicitly states that the people must have a say. And, but here's the problem, because it's actually called Agenda 21, the agenda is already set. And Rosa points out, like, they are not looking, they're, they don't show you a variety of different plans in their pretty pictures. It's one plan. So consensus building is really about getting you to buy into what they are doing anyway. And it's very tricky the way they say it. And so it really rang a bell when I saw this homelessness initiative in on the Biden White House, it says uh, to develop all in, like the federal plan against homelessness, this USICH, which is the, the federal homelessness thing that was established in the 80s, they undertook a comprehensive and inclusive input process, this is a quote, that included more than 1,500 online comments and 81 listening sessions that gathered feedback from thousands of providers, elected officials, advocates, and others, including more than 500 who have experienced homelessness. The process included people from nearly 650 communities, tribes, and territories. So they make you think that those people's opinions were taken into account in crafting the outcome, but that's not it at all. It's really about them allowing people to think they were part of the process. And it was when, so one of the things they made fun of Rosa in that Atlantic article back in the day was that she talks about this Delphi method that was developed by the Rand Corporation. And when I read what she wrote, it sounds crazy. It sounds like she's being paranoid, but I know People who have had this experience, particularly in labor unions, and you can see it in some of the school board stuff, where the school board, um, like there's a meeting and a parent shows up and the parent like is increasingly frustrated, gets pissed off, gets escorted out of there. This happened during Common Core, which is a total Agenda 21 thing. Um, it's happened with the recent stuff, maybe trans stuff or the... Um, critical race theory stuff. I, I haven't been following it that much, but I have, I mean, I've heard stories about people having problems at these school board meetings, at union meetings that sound exactly like what Rosa was saying happened. And so this is the thing, this is the, the, the Delphi method. And, you know, because it's, it's there to develop support of an agenda, it's obviously very inherently manipulative. Okay, so I actually, on the Rand Corporation website right now, the 1967 initial study layout of the Delphi technique is there. And the blurb that introduces the PDF is, it says, this is a description of the Delphi technique, which attempts to make effective use of informed intuitive judgment in long-range forecasting. 
The Delphi method, in its simplest form, solicits the opinions of experts through a series of carefully designed questionnaires interspersed with information and opinion feedback. (laughs) Carefully designed. A convergence of opinion has been observed in the majority of cases where the Delphi approach has been used. So uh, it says, in a few of the cases where no convergence toward a relatively narrow interval of values took place, opinions began to polarize around two distinct values. Two schools of thought regarding a particular issue seem to emerge. I don't understand this sense. Refinements that have been made in the Delphi technique consist of the introduction of weighted opinions. Does that mean like some opinions are more important than others? And use of the technique in conjunction with a simulated decision-making process. Whatever, feel free to read it. But so it looks to me that either you get a consensus or the second best thing is a polarity, polarization. And boy, have we seen that with the vaccines, all of that stuff. Like they, it looks to me that once they, they try to get everybody together, and I've talked about this before, like what happened to the days of politics where everybody was just wishy-washy in the center? And now they're not. They actually are trying to polarize people to the extremes. And what's actually funny is Rosa said that she was getting a lot of interest in fighting Agenda 21, and that's why The Atlantic put a hit piece out on her. But she said that it totally dried up after Trump was elected because people figured he would take care of it. She could not get people riled up. But in any case, so the, uh, I don't know if she wanted to get people riled up. Actually, she didn't. She talks about that. She wanted to get them engaged, though. Um, and I actually wondered about, so I said in like school board meetings, you see it, you see it in um, labor union meetings, but this idea of getting buy-in, building consensus to a, a preconceived idea, maybe that was, I never understood why Clinton wanted to have town hall meetings. I was like, wow, won't that get out of hand? Remember he introduced that to this country and they still happen? I think it's for this reason, because she says, you know, to get people to think they're participating because she says they really carefully manage these meetings. Um, here are some of the things she points out. She says feedback is solicited, but controlled and curated. So like what they were saying with the homelessness thing when Biden's like, we took, you know, hundreds of, 1,500, whatever. Yeah, it's like you get the feedback and she said they take what they supports the agenda and they literally throw the rest away. It says... um, she said, the, so you're in a meeting like this, the audience is seated with many members of groups with a vested interest in the proposed plan. And sometimes those who are directly affected, like in a zone that's, that's um, earmarked for redevelopment, like those people won't get flyers, but people in other areas will get flyers. I don't know if this is the NIMBY thing, the not in my backyard, I don't know. But by leaving out the people who would really be affected and including people who really want it to happen, it gives this false sense of a consensus already. And then she said this, and I know this happens. And I have a friend who was in a union and he said this, is when he described this to me, like I was like, wow, that sounds really, you know, almost too constructed to like be against your viewpoint. But when I read the account in Rose's book of how they use the Delphi method, that union meeting he told me about was 100% consistent with what she was saying. And in this particular way, if too many opponents to the proposal show up, the meeting is adjourned and rescheduled and then maybe like quietly rescheduled, like not rescheduled at that moment. Um, 
maybe at an inconvenient time for normal people or like the very next morning. So you don't tell them, but but then after everybody goes home, like the few people remaining, like, like okay, let's come back at nine o'clock in the morning and get it done. Um, she says they have you sign in. They will sometimes take, uh, you know, demographics, like what age group, like how many people are here from this age group or whatever, like make no, I don't know why. She said, you'll sit through a presentation during which no questions are permitted. And then uh, afterwards, there's a question and answer period. It's very limited. Maybe a few people were already like slated to ask questions, but there's always a time crunch. So you can't like get to every question. But she did say that the presentations will always have those feel good slides of the, of the proposed outcome and only the proposed outcome. Parks, bike lanes, <laughs> just like it said, like the tyranny of international bike lanes. She said also they'll have like breakout groups and they'll be seated with people from the vested interest organization, um, or just organizers who have already, um, been identified and then those people will observe in the group either somebody that is like bought in and that person will be tapped to be a neighborhood organizer or somebody who's like a genuine threat who's against it and you kind of want to marginalize that person. Also, they'll make note of people who could be triggered and then you trigger the person and make their position look crazy. Like this is what she was saying and it's so true. Um, and I remember, I remember when I was marching against Obamacare, I think it was the last time, and they, there was a balcony, like we were out in front of Congress and there was a balcony and a lot of, I thought they were congressmen, but they were all black, black, I guess they were con congressional aides and they were like taking pictures of us and laughing at us and pointing at us and it was really infuriating me. And one of the people there was like, I think I was texting like one of the organizers, somebody I met on the bus and he said, like, don't let them bait you. They're trying to bait you. Do not fall for it. Stay calm. And I was like, it's infuriating. But I did. I stayed calm. And actually, we were walking around looking for Nancy Pelosi. And, and they said, oh, no, she definitely is doing underground tunnels. She's not walking through this crowd. But the next day on the news, I saw her and John Lewis walking hand in hand or arm in arm through a crowd. And I was like, I was looking for her. We were looking for her. She didn't walk through the crowd that was actually looking for her. And she had a giant mallet in her hand, like the hammer. And they were saying she was being spit on. John Lewis was being spit on. And it was totally a racist thing. And I was like, wow, they were really trying to set up something to make the people against Obamacare look racist. Like they were only there because Obama was black or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it was very clear that we were trying, we were being baited and in a way that would have been completely consistent with the narrative they rolled out the next day. So I can absolutely attest to the fact that triggering people is definitely something they do. And, uh, and so when she's talking about breakout groups and in-person stuff, boy, imagine how much easier it is to do the, the Zoom stuff. Like when they have these, these, their virtual town hall meetings and you would see, I think Binkley played a couple of clips for me over the years where somebody would ask kind of a weird question or a question that wasn't on script. And that you would definitely not hear from that person again, definitely no follow-ups. And, or like you would have somebody reading questions that were submitted just by somebody typing them in. So then you can really curate the questions if you're not just randomly like, hey, Joe, you can go next, you know? Uh, so Rosa calls it communitarianism. 
where the community has the rights and the individual doesn't, like the individual right has to be subordinate to that and that individual rights are a threat to the quote global community. And that, and this was something I found really interesting about what you were saying. Like they depict you as selfish if you assert your rights. And I just could not help but think of Greta, like, how dare you? I mean, it's, and Rose wrote this 10 years ago. And uh, I also think like this idea of stakeholders. So you have shareholders who actually have a vested interest in the company um, who will hold you to your fiduciary duty to serve their interests. But all of a sudden, those people who actually own the company, and these are not big shareholders, like everybody gets a say, everybody gets a vote. And in the old days when we had pensions and stuff, like half of the market practically were pension funds who were you in a collective forum with some market power. I think it was great. I always thought that shareholdership was just a fantastic way for people to uh, to participate on the capital side, for labor to participate on the capital side. I always thought that was great. But if you, so, but now they say there's all sorts of stakeholders and stakeholders are represented by basically political actors. And those actors claim a right based on you and your membership in whatever community that is, homeowners in that neighborhood or whatever. But you're not necessarily, um, that's another, like from Crisis of Democracy, the Brzezinski thing, that they want you to be part of an organization that isn't as democratic as like actual political processes are. So they have you part of an organization and the, the leader of that organization isn't necessarily going to represent your rights. So I feel like the stakeholder thing is a way to aggregate and, you know, neutralize your actual interest and rights in what an institution is doing. And, but her idea that like shame was a big part of keeping you under control could not be more on point from masks and vaccines, killing grandma, um, racism, homophobia, uh, that like even promoting like objectively healthy lifestyles is body shaming. Um, uh, if you're against like, financial, you know, global financial capitalism, hijacking your governments through fractional reserve banking and other like non-market or, you know, fundamentally unsound methods. Like, like they couple that with anti-Semitism, climate change, you are hurting other people. Like that shame and selfishness thing is absolutely spot on. And she points out that in the end, you try to participate, but you feel like you've been mocked. And then you never try again. And she says, that's been, you've been Delphied. Um, another thing she points out is that they flood the zone with organizations and meetings and do little bits and pieces of their agenda at different places. So they say that they've had all of this community involvement, but you can't keep up on it. You can't keep track of it. You can't, um, really digest all of the issues at once. Like I noticed that when I'm, when I'm looking into this. But like ICLE, the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, they talk about hitting regions at a time, about having these normalized initiatives that can be implemented in different localities all around the world that you don't even know that it's interconnected. It's really, really insidious. Um, and then, you know, the way they do it is just by building consensus around a preconceived agenda. 
And that consensus thing, again, she was so ahead of it. That has, I mean, this particular thing that just happened in California really infuriated me. Byron sent me this. AB 2098 went into effect. It's a law that will empower the Medical Board of California to revoke the licenses, revoke the licenses of physicians who disseminate misinformation, in quotes, or as the bill says, false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus on COVID-19. The scientific consensus, which has been proven wrong and admitted wrong at the CDC, at the FDA, by so many people who were dictating to us what to do, while at the same time not having the science to back it up, and are now saying, let's, you know, we were doing the best we could with what we had. They're making it a law that disagreeing to something that is not in evidence can get you to lose your license. I mean, you can lose your license if you commit medical malpractice. That's bad enough because medical malpractice is used as a touchstone. The touchstone they use is just simply common practice. It's crazy. But this goes a step further. Like you've done nothing wrong by express your educated opinion and that you've concluded something different from what the majority concluded, right? A consensus? Is a consensus like unanimous or is a consensus just the loudest voices or is it even a majority? Because what if it's a majority? What if it's 51% of the people? To be 49% of the people have to keep their mouth shut or lose their licenses? I mean, what percentage makes your opinion invalid? Like what is the democratically uh, um, effective not like when people take a vote on what is a scientific fact, is it scientific? Science is a democratic process. It's, it's, it's lunacy. Uh, so I would also just in closing direct you to this ICLEI, ICL, EI document, ICLEI in the urban area, 2021 to 2023. I just randomly pulled up one page, page 26, nature-based development. It talks about what they want to do with this is so this is international initiatives implemented on a local basis. It's a UN thing. And they want to protect and restore humanity's broken relationship with nature and the planet while respecting, treasuring, and enhancing biodiversity and the integrity of ecosystems in and around our cities, which underpin our local economies and upon which we depend for the social integrity, well-being, and resilience of our communities. Not going to read it again. It's a bunch of BS gobbledygook because they can't support any of that stuff. This is not something where, I mean, when you're talking about consensus, these are not scientific facts. These are not initiatives that they are going to be implementing that are guaranteed to work. They are not even able to prove that these are problems And they definitely have not proven to me that they're acting in good faith. I think they're acting in bad faith because they start with false premises. But even if they were acting in good faith, it is absolutely positive, in my opinion, that the money and effort and power that these things take with them will be distorted by the public-private partnerships, by the contracts that they have to give out, by just the natural corruption that's inherent in this stuff. That doesn't have even the kind of transparency that a real, that a regular, like your legal processes include. And when they talk about like protecting nature in the cities, that is a lot of land use restrictions. And I, and they have not proven to me that what they implement actually achieves 
the goal that they state. And then just in section B of this, it says, we will deploy strategies and inspirational, ambitious, whole of government and whole of society plans and initiatives that use the potential of nature to provide essential ecosystem services sustainably to unlock. I appreciate that not splitting the affinitive new economic opportunities in our jurisdictions by applying nature-based solutions, blah, 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 infrastructure plans, green zones. But listen to that wording, inspirational, ambitious, whole of government and whole of society plans. That means that they don't know what they're doing. They're living in a fantasy world, but they're going to use all the power they can to completely change everything. Because then in C, it says they're going to drive wide-scale behavioral change in urban communities um, towards lives lived in harmony with nature and within planetary boundaries. So the limits of growth set out those planetary boundaries and has absolutely been proven false. The, their predictive abilities, these people, which is the same people, these predictive abilities are uh, proven inadequate. And you can see that things that they're doing are pushing these failures on us artificially. When I've done, I've talked about this, hashtag another perfect storm. I've talked about the supply chain issues that are obviously manufactured in order to make us think there are limits to the system as it is right now. But it's not because when the system emerges organically, responds to needs, market forces and feedbacks, it adapts. We don't have these problems, but they want top-down 100% power. And because of that, they are trying to convince us we have these problems by actually creating some of them. Um, they talk about they will commit to working together through cities with nature and regions with nature platforms to share, connect, connect. Remember Project Connect, Families Connect Texas and Austin to connect, pioneer, and learn together in our journey. Learn together in our journey with nature and reshaping the city of today. I mean, I do not want massive centralized totalitarian technocracy learning as it goes, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think that they aren't all powerful and that these things do fail. Um, and now that people maybe who trusted the plan now realize it's time to wake up again and see what's happening locally, but knowing about this Delphi process, I think is really, really valuable because you can go in and read more about it. Read behind the green mask. It's good. Um, or, and Rosa was a, was an urban planner. Like she was, she's a credentialed government worker, if I'm not mistaken, or was. And go to the Rand Corporation and look up the Delphi technique. I actually have it in the show notes and just see how they are using these manipulative tactics. Um, and I would say the most important thing. So the reason I was looking at all this is because I always tell people like, yes, get your land, buy your chickens, but make sure that you can collect rainwater, that you can um, maintain your uh, right to bear arms and by going to like the local government. But it's not just the local government. Like these planners that I don't even know if they're elected officials, they are being influenced by these plans that are that are extra jurisdictional and all that kind of stuff. And it is important to realize what's going into this. And a lot of this stuff is there in ICLE, in the UN Agenda 21 stuff. You can, it is not too late because there still are local laws 
local processes, elected officials who should have to answer to this stuff. And she's saying like the, the people who even get on your ballots at the very local level have already been people who are identified by these outsiders, by this international group as people who will help them with their plans. And I feel like if you can get into that Delphi thing, uh, understand how it works, forewarned is forearmed. And just the smallest uh, organizations now, like um, these people are helping parents fight some of the the regional or some of the, the policies that are coming into their own schools that they don't want. Like they're getting wise to this stuff. And these are a couple of good resources to help you understand the methods that we are up against and to keep us, you know, when you see what she predicted and what's actually happening, it can wake people up. I mean, it's there. So, I mean, information has value. And Rosa wrote down the keys to the processes these guys use. And, you know, it is time to exploit the people waking up because of the pandemic the way that the World Economic Forum and all these other places state they want to exploit the pandemic to implement their policies. It is, this is a ripe time, I think, to turn the tables on them. And I feel like she just, this was a great resource for that, especially in this when they're bringing in this homelessness and housing, they're going to try to implement those policies. And it's good to know where they come from and, uh, you know, how to, you know, what their tactics are going to be. So that was a lot. For part three, I mean, maybe too much. I think I might have gotten a little obsessive about this topic. And I feel like I just scratched the surface. Um, probably want to go have one of those delicious and uh, <laughs> um, anxiety-reducing CBD gummies that I love for my guys at True Hem Science who are in Austin. They are definitely trying to keep Austin weird. <laughs> no doubt about that. I haven't given them a shout out in a long time. So just want to remind you, they have a promo code Deep Dive, capital D, capital D, one word, for a $25 bottle of CBD oil for every $100 you purchase. And I can personally say that I cannot imagine a better, higher quality CBD product out there. I really, really love these. Um, I feel like it's part of my kind of uh, post-holiday health routine is to... Um, now that there are no more Christmas cocktails, just have my after dinner gummy and, you know, relax. So if you are enjoying this, please share it with somebody you think might also enjoy it or share it on social media. Feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. Sorry, I'm giving you the NPR voice, but I'm at my mom's house and I don't want to disturb everyone. So anyway, uh, enjoy and talk to you next time on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. <laughs>